So often on the uh, second full day of uh, retreats, we um, give a talk about, uh, about the hindrances, uh, ill will and greed, fatigue, haziness, restlessness, doubt. But uh, I'm not going to give a talk about them. I am going to give you the cliff notes on what we say in response to each of those. We're just going to knock that right out and then move forward. So um, these states are, if there have been any moments when your mind has not been perfectly concentrated, one of these states has been with you. Yeah. Um, So for ill will, we basically just say that uh, hatred can never end well. And then for greed, we say that um, like trying to catch the mirage, you know, the highway on a hot day out in somewhere in the distance, the shimmering silvery glow that looks like maybe we'll finally arrive there doesn't come. And for sloth and torpor, we say, uh, sit up straight, open your eyes, maybe stand up, Take some deep breaths, be patient. For restlessness, we say, at least you're not tired. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, to bring some soothing into the body, you know, to, to find something, um, yeah, just to actually connect with the body in a loving, gentle way. And as the kind of energy of restlessness dissipates from the body, the mind can settle. And then uh, for doubt, um, we kind of just say, trust us. (laughs) Yeah. Trust this path. No doubt as doubt. Doubt has so many different faces yeah, of deliberating between meditation practices or wondering if we're doing it right or um, kind of questioning how we are now versus before or no, wondering where it's going, you know. And it's like, no, we just relax and um, trust in the logic of the Dharma. So there, we we did it. Some years ago, I was, I think it was 2005, I was at a a conference. with the Dalai Lama and uh, a bunch of 
scientists, medical scientists. And um, there was a kind of attempt to, to try to speak across disciplines. So here's, here's the, the Dalai Lama and, um, and having a kind of cross-disciplinary dialogue with, uh, with empirical scientists, researchers who are very interested in the qualities of heart embodied by the Dalai Lama and the potential of those practices for um, uh, affecting change. And one of the uh, the speakers, Ajahn Amaro, from the Thai forest tradition, a, a, a monastic, a monk of, I must be close to 40 years now, um, he sort of uh, broke down the the four noble truths in medical language yeah. and he, the way that he characterized it was um, yeah that these four truths um, roughly kind of parallel in medicine a diagnosis a, the cause the etiology the prognosis where it's going, and the treatment. And so the diagnosis, um, the first noble truth, that that um, a lot of ways of talking about it, but it is not easy being human. And some measure of suffering is woven into the fabric of our life. And that is um, not our fault, and we cannot actually explain away the first noble truth in terms of our own personal failings or our, the conditions of our own life. This is actually something that's deeply shared. And so um, the recognition of the, the kind of universality of this is important. This is uh, uh, Paul Fulton speaking about psychotherapy and its limitations. And I, I quote him here, uh, not to be dismissive of psychotherapy, which is uh, beautiful and sometimes, you know, more helpful, appropriate than meditation, but uh, to acknowledge its, its limits too, and to uh, actually touch into the universality of this, this diagnosis. So Fulton writes, psychotherapy is a powerful tool for many issues, but it takes discernment to know what can and cannot be addressed in therapy. Analyzing problems innate to being born as a human may be akin to handing a shovel to someone who is caught in a pit when what is really needed is a ladder. To recognize insecurity as a fact of human existence and not evidence of shameful shortcomings helps relieve ourselves of the unrealistic expectation that it is a problem we should be expected to solve and allows for a different way of encountering, holding, and opening to this as a reality. This possibility is where our Dharma practice begins.
So a diagnosis and a, a cause. Uh, tanha, a craving, which is different than desire, different than being clear on what supports our well-being. It's the kind of feverish, impulsive need to fill some some hole that in the heart that feels like it, it needs filling. And then uh, the prognosis that it actually forms of freedom are possible that we do not suspect. That some of the capacities of the heart that we actually discover in stillness and silence are not really easily imagined outside of that stillness. And then uh, the treatment, what do we do? And uh, the Buddhist suggestion is this, there is a path, the, the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is broken down into, um, it's kind of three baskets. Um, so there's ethical conduct that uh, speech, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then there's um, samadhi or mind training, wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. And then the wisdom basket, panya in, in Pali, of wise intention and wise view. And so uh, this afternoon I want to speak about about sila, samadhi, panya, both uh, as how they're supported by love and how they grow love. Ajahn Chah said, he made some comment uh, that um, that sila samadipanya, this ethical conduct, mind training, and wisdom are not three separate activities. They are part of the same fruit. They are the mango pit, flesh, and skin. And that mango may be in different state of ripeness or unripeness, maybe big or small, but these, these three, uh, three cultivations are um, one in the same, inextricably bound. And we'll see how that, that's so. So a few key points that then I'll try to unpack in some way. To be mindful of goodness brings love. And to be mindful of pain brings love. 
And that is something like a miracle. This weird asymmetry that to attend to goodness brings love and to attend to suffering also brings love. That's not something that uh, should take on faith but this is, as, as Dana has said, like this is the laboratory. The more attuned we are to our hearts, the clearer our ethical behavior becomes. So the more we actually become embodied, start to feel our body fully, to feel our heart, the clearer our ethical conduct becomes. It's like we become attuned to our own system in such a way that we begin to see that doing good feels good. And the kind of karmic loop, the kind of, when we act in out of alignment with our own deepest integrity, the kind of feedback loop gets shorter and shorter, so we really feel it. And this clarity breeds more careful, non-harming behavior. The steadier and more unified the mind gets, the deeper the love can be. Sometimes the mind gathers so singularly around an object, the the breath, a metaphrase, the body, sound, sight, looking into the eyes of another person, and the mind just becomes unified. And all the kind of static and fragmentation and division collapses and there's, yeah. And in that mind state, it's like a a drop of love reaches everywhere. The mind is said to, to be boundless. And that's not making a statement about the nature of mind, but the actual experience is that in this moment, there is love without end, without discrimination, without preference. And then lastly, the more clearly we see, the more effortless the love becomes. Clearly we see the the less tenable hatred becomes. So I'll say something now about, uh, about these three cultivations. 
So, so sila, ethical conduct, um, it's kind of, it's sort of like when you hear, I don't know what your association is with those words, ethical conduct, but it doesn't sound so good to me. It sounds like somebody's going to tell me to do something that I kind of don't want to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes there is a sense of ethical conduct being a form of renunciation, of letting go. But when we really get close to it, it's like, no, Siva is, is beautiful. It's beautiful. Sometimes the way I read the Buddha is, um, is something like, uh, you know, make of your heart a, a work of art. Make it as beautiful as can be. And that kind of, that work of purification, of cultivation is, uh, is endless. It can keep getting more and more beautiful, more and more potent. And early in, in practice, I heard a, a, a monk say, the monk who had been, you know, a kind of renunciate, celibate monastic for decades, said that his aspiration was to uh, be safe for others. And there was something about that 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 touched my heart so deeply. Um, that that after all those years, the kind of aspiration was was to be to be safe for others. And in the the Buddhist canon, in the suttas, the Buddha says, "Make make your heart a refuge for all beings." That's the spirit of sila. To transform the whatever places in us from which we can do harm so much that, that no being needs fear us. Maybe we know what it's like to be with a being that we truly do not fear, whose heart we trust so deeply that it allows us to experience ourselves uh, completely without any vigilance. And so uh, to know uh, as we practice uh, like doing something like metta, we, we start to touch into how deeply we long to be happy, to be at peace. And this is, this is part of what we're doing as we just keep kind of showing up, you know, sit after sit, like as, as one, one of, uh, a teacher of mine, uh, 
uh, Michelle McDonald said, uh, you know, like if this kind of thing were aimed at like bliss, we would get up at like 10, come in, short sit, 10, 15 minutes maybe, lunch, (laughs) nap time, right? It's designed so that you suffer. (laughs) I don't know if that's dawned on you yet. (laughs) And It's designed in such a way that uh, we are asked to look where we're caught and how we compound the difficulties of the moment. And so one of the lessons as we sit just hour after hour is we're just sensing in to like, oh yeah, it's, it's hard to be human. This mind is, can be wild and can move in painful ways. And there are loose ends of being human. In every human life, there are loose ends. There's, of course, the kind of suffering of, of the world. Others much less fortunate than us. And At some point we start to sense in like with, with more and more clarity, like the poignancy of that situation, that we can overlook that and just continue being busy about resolving the problems of our life. But at some point it like really hits us. This is actually the human condition and I'm trying to make peace with it. And when we, we do that work, we can't help but start to see the same longing in the eyes of others that we see in ourselves to be safe, to, to be at peace, to not suffer. Stephen Batchelor said, uh, he wrote um, about the face, just how evocative the face is, the face as a kind of basis for ethics, just how much it does to our heart and mind to really see the face of another. Right? Even when no words are spoken, your face calls out to me. The first word of the face, says the philosopher Levinas, is, thou shalt not kill. We recognize this call because we hear in it the echo of our own deepest fears and longings. Another's face shocks us into helpless silence in which we are called to respond from the same depth within ourselves that we witness in their plea. The roots of empathy, compassion, and love lie in that intimate encounter when we hear the other wordlessly say, 
Do not kill me, do not rob me, do not abuse or deceive me, do not betray me, do not insult me, do not try to possess me, do not bear me ill will, do not misconstrue me. This is supported by a care for oneself. The Buddha said, one who loves themselves will not harm another. One who has actually touched in deeply enough to one's own existential situation can't help but learn something about others and how much they seek to be safe. There's a um, uh, a writer uh, who who's written a couple books um, and an essayist, and she writes a kind of um, advice column. Uh, Heather Haverleski is her name, and. Um, She's writing, and, and it's like not a normal advice column. It's like some good dharma, you know. I don't know, I don't think she's a Buddhist, or, but she's like learned a lot, you know, through whatever path is hers. And um, so she's counseling this like very deeply self-critical woman who had written in saying that her life was kind of, as I remember, it was like, you know, my life is roughly okay, but this just intensity of the self-harshness just will not leave and will not let me be alone and at peace. And um, describes, um, Heather then kind of describes her own path around some of these themes and gives advice to uh, this woman And so um, she writes, uh, the full scope of my self-hatred and self-doubt shocked me. It almost felt like I was trying to track down one outspoken angry ranter who kept yelling at me from a high window or a street corner or a passing car. But when I finally found her, She was hiding out in a church full of angry ranters just like her, and they were all mad at me for different reasons. Easy enough to shut down one voice, but how could I defeat an entire religion built on the foundation of my awfulness? The church tells you you need to try harder. They say you have to fix this but they're wrong. You don't have to do a goddamn thing. In order to finally let go of everything you're holding up, you need to embrace and welcome all of your fears about what will happen if you aren't prepared. You need to look and unravel them. And you also need to let go of this imaginary better version of you who's always a few feet ahead but you can never catch up to her. 
She might seem close, but you know what? Forget her. She isn't here where you are. I want you to try to stop catching up to that perfect ghost they sing about in your church and join me here instead. Let's be broken and cold and anxious and sarcastic together. It isn't just okay, it's hot to be old and really fucking weird. (laughs) Revel in who you already are effortlessly and leave your imaginary impossible self behind forever. It's time to leave that church. It's time to close the prayer book that was forever open to that one reading about the little girl who was waiting, heartbroken, for a dad to come home. It's time to stop trying so hard to prevent the next disaster. Let's walk out of the church together into the sunshine, into the pouring rain, crying and laughing, old and weird and hot and strange as hell and wide awake. We didn't write these hymns. We can forget them. You, we are not accountable to other people's misperceptions of us. The world will keep spinning with or without our help. We are free. And so in this sense, this self-love and kindness is, it's not, um, it's not self-indulgent. It, it becomes the, the basis of um, relating to the hearts of others. And we keep, uh, we keep asking, what does goodness want from me? What does a good life mean? To what am I accountable? How much of my life must I give to goodness? And that changes over time. As we become more sufficient in our own system, it becomes natural for the gaze to turn outwards. How do we look into our hearts. How do we do this work of looking in? We do it with the steadiness of the mind, with samadhi. Life can feel so relentless. We usually just say we're, we're busy but busy is really just another word for samsara, for this realm, for the kind of relentlessness of it. Where sense, sense experience just continues, sights and sounds, it all is rushing in, it's touching us, impinging on us.
sensations of the body. And we, um, we can't uh, escape from that, but we can find some refuge when the mind begins to settle. That part of the, the nature of this gathered mind is that things start to feel like they slow down. We're, we're protected from the relentlessness of change for temporarily. And that is necessary for the heart. We usually, the word samadhi is translated often as concentration, but um, it's probably not ideal. It's more like the unification of the mind, the stability, the flexibility of the mind. Um, And we we usually think about um, the concentration as something we get in order to, to be happy. But it's actually the reverse. We actually get satisfied enough with this moment and then the mind gathers. We make peace with the human condition, which is a kind of gesture of love. That's how the mind actually becomes glued together. So ordinarily we, we notice that we're, we're almost always waiting for something. You know that, that feeling of like the the resting place, the, the refuge is somewhere out there. We feel like we're here and there's something somewhere out there in the so-called future that will finally provide. And that kind of sense of, of our, our well-being and refuge being forever deferred is um, ultimately painful. Sometimes we can be waiting, we can be waiting as we, as we sit here for the next breath. Yeah, we're with one breath, but then we're actually waiting for the exhalation. Just a subtle leaning forward. And so we practice actually, uh, in a sense, knowing the future. Yes, time marches forward, things will change. And in any moment, the notion of the future is is just a kind of imagination in the present moment that we get identified with. And so we put all of our hope into the present. We put all of our hope into the present. The 
Now, this means to, to begin to steady the view, to look into the heart with, with samadhi, uh, means that we're going to have to contend with, <clears throat> with thoughts. And, um, you know, we meditators, we're, it's, we're almost like embarrassed that we think, you know. It's kind of like, you know, in the in practice discussions, the interviews, people are sort of like, I was thinking, you know, and sort of like, look down shamefully. Uh, like, yeah. So, uh, the more we make an enemy of any experience, uh, the more it follows us, just like uh, that uh, poem uh, that Dana read from uh, well, Jennifer Wellwood. So we're not uh, we're not going to kind of battle with with thoughts, but we are acknowledging their limitations that we cannot think our way to freedom. It feels like we can. We hear this path of liberation, of awakening, and my main impulse is, I'll just think my way there. I'll just kind of, it's like we're so accustomed to solving problems with thinking that we imagine every problem is to be solved in that way. And this one cannot be. The heart cannot be solved by more thinking. So the the uh, Nobel laureate said, um, uh, Kahneman said, uh, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. Yeah. Almost all of our thoughts, when we're like identified with them, have a certain kind of urgency. We kind of, our default assumption is that they're kind of brilliant. Yeah? It's just like, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah, right? That's like the default assumption, right? And we want to... uh, uh, to look what happens as we start to get quiet. As we start to get quiet, we can see that the compulsion to tell stories, to narrate our life, to put ourselves between the past and the future, to be oriented, to say, I am here and you are there, to say that I end here and space begins here. All of this, this kind of compulsive narration serves to create some sense of security. The stories we tell are stories we tell so that we might keep track of the threats and opportunities of being human. And 
you know, there can almost be a kind of, um, yeah, a terror in not talking to ourselves about ourselves. Maybe you have some intuitive sense of that, that the kind of, it feels very deeply exposed to not plug this moment into a kind of narrative of where we're going, what's good, what's bad, what I want, what must be avoided. It's a certain kind of radical vulnerability to the moment. And some of that is why we commit to take the precepts to care exquisitely for one another, not to harm each other, to have each other's backs. So that maybe a part of our system, a part of the heart feels more at ease in beginning to let go, in beginning to uh, feel safe enough that we don't need to track everything in this moment. As we do this, the mind starts to, to, to gather. Yeah. The mind starts to gather and, uh, And this is uh, ultimately the fruit of letting go, of allowing the imperfection of life to be as it is. And so we're looking inward, we're looking inward with this very steady gaze of samadhi and cultivating uh, panya. These last few minutes, I'll, I'll say something about that. The learning on this path is uh, exhilarating and um, disorienting and beautiful. The Dharma is always more than we bargain for. And how we get into practice and then what what this path is, it, it always gets bigger as we venture further in. And the learning is by definition surprising. That's what learning is. We are surprised by our minds. We are surprised by our suffering. We are surprised by the capacities of our hearts. We are surprised by what is possible. The Buddha said that, that at some level, we, the, the default position of the mind, unless we actually really tend to it, unless we develop sila and samadhi, the default position of the mind will be, there'll be some measure of delusion in it. That um, we will presume that 
uh, life can be mastered, that the conditions of life can be set up to be just so, we will presume that kind of we could hold life, that life stops changing, that we might be able to hold life still. I have this like uh, enduring fantasy of like holding, like just getting it just so, and then like, yeah, like that's the kind of energy of it. And we presume that's possible. And then we, we presume that, um, that we own the self, that, um, that there's a kind of Matthew within Matthew that receives all experience. These are the kind of default assumptions that we have. And so we begin to, uh, as, as uh, Ajahn Sajitta said, we begin to massage the closed heart. We massage the closed heart. And we do this through our, through our love, through the unification of the mind. And what is released in this process is that we, we begin to grieve some of the illusions that we've held, maybe knowingly, maybe unconsciously. The illusion that I could um, own control my life, that my life is a function of the self. Andy Olensky says, why is it that humans tend to feel possessive and acquisitive about all aspects of their experience? The ownership of property is embedded in most legal systems, but in drawing out the implications of the Buddhist insight, one sees that this is an extension of a much more profound habit of mind. It is this very sense of ownership that is directly responsible for both individual and collective suffering. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate and is itself the expression of a profound delusion which gives rise to all sorts of strife. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate. Maybe we have some intuitive sense of what kind of um, openness and freedom is possible in the sense of um, non-ownership. When we begin to actually recognize that we influence so much, but control, own nothing, what starts to dawn on us is that 
this life, just being alive, is dana. It is a generosity. It is a gift. As a kid, I thought I would, that when I would grow up, I would like finally land in an identity. Like, okay, yeah, I'm a kid now, but somewhere out there in the future, I'm gonna like grow up and then I'll be who I'll be for the rest of my life, yeah. But the potter's wheel just keeps spinning, yeah? And that sense of like, landing in an identity, it never comes. That sense of like, of making oneself something. That is not a refuge. Our identities are not refuges. And there's something always a little bit alienating about all identities. But the more loosely we are actually able to hold this, the more um, the more free we are and the more free to love we are. When we're not uh, investing so much energy in curating this sense of self for an audience, for ourselves, what is freed up is a certain kind of uh, heartfulness. We're no longer taking ownership of our identity, who we think we are, And so we keep looking and discovering, letting go of illusion, illusion. And uh, kind of convergence of, of sila, samadhi, and panya. One uh, same fruit. And then uh, what's left to do, but um, live and serve and die.
sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.